blessing it is, as Eric read this morning, that you sent Emmanuel, yourself with us, that heaven truly did come down so that we can be raised to life eternal with you. What a wonderful God you are. <laughs> what a wonderful Lord you are. What an amazing God you are. What a loving God you are. I pray as we talk about your word this morning that you would fill our hearts and minds and particularly to give us your eyes and your ears to see you as you work and not let what we may expect get in the way. Bless this time, God. Meet us in our own hearts and minds as we enter your throne of prayer, of singing, of praising, and of reading your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I just do, I just do, as well as I do, want to give a special quick shout out, because uh, these guys don't get enough credit. I want to give a special thanks to the tech team for this whole time of horribleness, <laughs> but they've done an awesome job, and especially in, <clears throat> in transitioning to different and additional cameras and mics and being aware of both here and there. I just want to say thank you, everyone who's involved with that. Uh, give them a hand, as they've done a great job, I think. Also, particularly, I want to say thank you to the song leaders as well, as we've made a little shift of, once again, being uh, aware of the people at home, and I know it's not easy to stand up here without kind of the safety of a mic, uh, but thank you, Thomas and Casey and Ryan. He, let, he left just as I complimented him. That's so typical. Um, but uh, anyone else, I, I can't, uh, Frank and uh, Roland and uh, everyone who's been doing that, and also just everyone who serves as well. Um, it's been a time of transition. And even just thank you all for being, once again, patient and, and engaged and understanding at just there's something going on every week, it seems, that's a little bit new. But uh, we do this. God is praised. His people are hopefully encouraged, and, uh, and that's enough. So if, even if, as I sometimes pray, uh, even if we crash and burn at the worship service, God, as long as you're still praised, that's okay. As I mentioned before, we have a sermon today that's about expectations. So what I did is trying to think of how to intro this sermon. I went on the fabulous uh, rabbit hole of YouTube, and I found a couple clips that I made a game out of today. And so what's going to happen is that a clip is going to play for a few seconds, and then it's going to pause. And then I want you guys to tell me, and you have about 30 seconds or so before it gets going, I want you to yell out and tell me what you think is going to happen. Everyone clear? Everyone good? All right, we got a few clips of these uh, at home. Play with your, um, with your family. Just, you know, see what happens yourself. Let me know how you did. All right, the first one here. So we have a scene. Uh, this is a news reporter. Uh, the reporter is over here, and uh, she's at the top of a hill setting. Let's see. Uh, the, there's no audio here, so uh, it's okay. She gets the sled and she goes and, all right, what is going to happen? Just yell it out. She's going to crash in the snow. She's going to crash in what? Into the cameraman? Into any, any other thoughts? Run over by a dog. I like the, uh, the randomness. There was a dog clip actually, which I didn't include, which was just completely random, uh, but that was close. Anyone else? All right, let's see what happens. A lot of crashing, so we'll see, we'll see if you're right. And, <laughs> But look, 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 she's okay. She's good. See, she even says she's okay. All right, 
So you knew what was going to happen there. No big, no big surprise. All right, this one's a little bit harder. This is a guy who owns a gym. He's, uh, he's being interviewed, and the clip goes like this. Yes, I work out. Can you tell? Yes, I can. There we go. All right, pause is right there. What's going to happen? Who's going to flip? Or who's going to trip? Okay. Guy in the background is going to fall. Any dogs in this one, Thomas? Flying, flying cat, Thomas. All right. Let's see what happens here. Ooh. <laughs> You're right. And the, there's the, and the horrible part is, look, no one helps him. He just stands back there. He, yep. He, love this. The guy, look, look. Guy, he walked around. Ow, my head. <laughs> yeah. It's, <laughs> all right. So you guys got that one. So those are two fairly easy. Uh, let's go to this one. Maybe you, uh, maybe you know this one. What's gonna? Well, let's play the clip here real quick. So this is a weather report. He's looking at San Francisco. You can tell this is uh, the San Francisco Bridge. All right, what's gonna happen? A plane? Someone's gonna walk across. Gonna draw his pen in the completely wrong spot. All right. He's gonna clean the lens on the clean the clean the blah. That. Clean the lens on the camera. All right, let's see what happens. What happens is a bird wants his 50 minutes of fame. <laughs> and he's pretty intense. He's like, hey, what's going on, people? <laughs> These are all live reports, too, which makes it awesome. All right, just a few more. All right, so here's a flying clip. They're in an ultralight plane, uh, what it looks like, and they're taking off. And what's going to happen? The guy in the treadmill is going to flip. All right. <laughs> He's going to, yeah. <laughs> any, any guesses? What's going to happen? What? He's going to run out of runway. All right. Any other guesses? She's, someone's going to get sick. Someone's going to cry. All right. Let's see what happens here. So they take off. Can you see it? There's a passenger. <laughs> but don't worry. I, I had to include the whole clip because I knew someone was going to be like, what happened to the cat? So it takes a while before they notice. Hi, kitty. <laughs> And don't worry, they notice, they go, what are you doing up here? And then they get back just fine. So your flying cat was a clip or two too early, Thomas. <laughs> and so yeah, the cat's just a little bit windblown, but he's fine. So, <laughs> All right, a couple more. This is, once again, another winter scene, uh, obviously. And so he's, he waves off, off camera, he's reporting. And pause, the pans out, now what's going to happen? A snowblower, but I'm hearing mostly a sled's going to crash into them. All right, let's, let's play it and see what happens. So he's looking. There we go. And... <laughs> now, this is my favorite part. There's audio. He finishes, he throws it back to the studio, and he's like, I'm done. <laughs> Um, I think there's a replay of it real quick here, yeah, slow-mo, woo! 
That's my least favorite one, actually, because it looks like that hurts the most, personally. All right, I think there's two more. All right, here's a clip. So um, she's interviewing at a dirtback rally. Interviews, he says, yep, I'm riding good. What's going to happen? Going to have a motorcycle passer, going to have mud splash. There we go. <laughs> now, my favorite part of this clip is that they replay it twice. <laughs> and then the close-up. <laughs> her mouth was open and everything. Yeah, poor, poor lady. All right, last one, and this is my favorite one. That's why it's last, this last one. All right, so they're walking with the cat behind them. What's going to happen? Pause. Going to jump over him? Going to what? Scared by something and jump on the kid? Going to do some, something about jumping is what I'm hearing. All right. You're not far off, but this is my favorite clip. Because Ninja Cat happens. <laughs> Look at that. He obviously practiced that one. And then he walks off, no big deal. <clears throat> All right, so that was fun and maybe a little bit painful. You're going to be thinking about that guy with the sled all day, aren't you? But uh, I do this not for just, just because of, of kicks and giggles, but because it illustrates something. Obviously, some of those you knew right what was going to happen. And that's based on your context, based on maybe you've seen clips like this before. But some of them you had no idea, and some of them based on what you thought would happen. Sometimes it went completely out. Random expectation, random cat in the air, flying cat. You said that because you didn't think it'd be real, did you? Your expectations, one, were set when you saw the initial scene. You thought something's going to happen. The reasons you thought it was going to happen, and then based on what happened, obviously your expectations changed, and you went, oh, I, I knew that, or I didn't. How we expect things and how we form those expectations are not just fun with looking at people getting hurt or finding random things you know, in, in their airplanes or anything, but expectations matter in life. We do the same thing. The whole point of this opening is that we do the same thing we just did, just now, but with life and with Bible and with every context that we have. Um, these are innocent because whether we're right or wrong, it's, oh, that's what happened. But we have expectations that are either met or not met in life. We have them with Bible. We have them with church. We have them all over the place. And how we make those expectations, as I said, how we define those expectations, how much we invest in those expectations, how important we deem those expectations to be, matter a great deal. All of us can probably relate a story to where you were absolutely sure something was going to go one way and it went completely the opposite. Or maybe worse sometimes is that when it goes almost the right way you want it, except there's a big part of it that was different or a small part, just we all have stories of met, unmet, and odd expectations. The people in the text this morning, starting in Matthew 1.18, also had those kind of expectations. And they impacted how they reacted to what was going on. This morning, we're going to look at three 
kinds of expectations that we find in Matthew 1.18 through Matthew 2.12. And that's uh, the expectations of moral expectations, power expectations, and messianic expectations. Moral expectations, power expectations, and messianic expectations. I should have had powers and M, but I could not think of another word that was close. So I did try, so give me that preacher point at least. Yeah, that didn't have... Yeah, I should have put muscle. That would be good. Oh, well. So you get the preacher points. <laughs> Power, moral, and messianic. So let's turn to the text, if you will, and we'll look at our first one. Matthew 1, 18. I, do just, I know Eric read it very capably, but I do just want to revisit it. Um, and this is from the ESV version. If for no other reason, then it's the one that I have in my hand. It makes it easy for me. Starting in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now, pause just for a second. Remember the greater context of what we're talking about here. Matthew has just spent the first 17 verses giving us his genealogy, which we talked about last week, uh, five ways that explain the kind of king Jesus was going to be just from the genealogy. And there's actually more than that. We would know more than that, if, you know, especially if we were had a Jew, more Jewish background or a historical background. But he just set up from the genealogy itself, the expectation of what was going to come. So now, from that, from basically Matthew saying, this is King Jesus, he's all-powerful, he's royal, he's historical, he's inclusive, he's hope-filled, all these things, he then transitions. Now the birth of Jesus Christ, the King, the Messiah, took place in this way. And right away, we begin to see a different expectation than someone reading this for the first time who knew the context would have thought. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being just a man, and un being a just man, sorry, there's a big difference there, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But the angel, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This is from Micah. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name, call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and then he called his name Jesus. As we consider this first section which I will not read the rest of it right now, we see the first expectation that was upon a character in the text, and that was of a moral expectation. We know the story well, most of us. Imagine you're Joseph. You are an upright, just Jewish man, as the text explicitly says, and you are engaged to a young virgin, the ideal and really only socially acceptable situation for a young man like Joseph. And then she says, we need to have a talk. And you sit down, and she says, I'm pregnant. But by the Holy Spirit, how would you react? Joseph did the best thing that he could. In Jewish society, people were considered to be practically married if they were engaged, meaning they actually had to go through the process of divorce, getting a certificate of divorce, which was condoned by Levitical law, in order to dissolve and annul their relationship. This wasn't anything... 
I hate to say it wasn't anything bad because divorce is not good, but this wasn't anything outside of society. This wasn't anything that was, that was out of left field. No one looked at anyone sideways and went, you did what? This was, especially in Jesus' time coming up, as we'll talk about when we get to Matthew 18, unfortunately, exceedingly common. And this goes back to the history of Deuteronomy 24 and that whole messed up history. So Joseph was doing a couple things here. He, one, was doing that which his morals dictated him to do. She is with child. I know where babies come from. I'm not going to do this. Society informs him this is perfectly acceptable to do. The interesting thing is that the scripture that was even quoted in Matthew Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Here's the thing. We tend to look back at these stories, and we know, oh, yeah, it's, it's the biblical story. But just for a moment, what would you think about? Someone, your spouse, your betrothed, coming to you and saying, I'm pregnant, but it's God's son, and it's okay. You'd think, where's the nearest certificate of divorce? <laughs> Morally, Joseph absolutely in the right. And that's what I want you to see about this. Morally, as far as his society goes, morally, as far as um, his culture goes, morally, almost in every single way that he knew he was in the right. But we know the rest of the story. An angel comes. That's not what angels probably look like, but this is a historical painting. Just point that out for no good reason. An angel comes and tells Joseph in a dream, which is actually indicative of the first Joseph, which means interpreter of dreams. Good little historical note there. And says, no, Mary's correct. Mary's absolutely right, and you shall name him Emmanuel. Reminds him of the sermon, of the, of the prophecy, the scripture rather. And indeed, he takes her, but does not know her until they, he was born. What I want you to see is that while Joseph was 100% in his own rights to do what he will, to do what he would have, Christ came about in a way that did not fit and meet or come into his moral expectation. He thought, this is where, how marriage works, this is how kids work, this is how the Messiah is probably supposed to work. There's no reason to think that, G, uh, that Joseph was... Um, any different than many other of the Jews at this time expected Jesus to come, the Messiah rather, to come in power and come in glory and come in this big old thing and to a trumpet sound and, and someone prepare, you know, to come not through this way. Although, what, I also, what also I want you to see is that the foundation was laid. Joseph knew the scriptures. He knew that prophecy. He knew all these things. He knew the framework. He knew that this was at least possible, but yet his moral expectations prevented him from seeing it initially. All right? We move on from there to expectations of power, or as muscle, if we want to be illiterate, as Thomas said. The text continues, and I, I went past the scripture, right? so um, just follow along in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, 
saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this... Now stop right there for a second. Herod the king. What does it mean to be a king, especially in that time? It means you have absolute power. It means you are the moral compass. It means that no one says no to you. It means that you get what you want. It means that you have riches beyond compare. It means a whole lot of power. It means a whole lot of um, prestige. It means a whole lot of things. Now imagine yourself as Herod, and you say, hey, a new king is in town, and you go, excuse me. Imagine a person like Herod rooted quite deeply into the world's vision of power. You oversee men. You do not lead them. You crush your oppression. You do not love them. You are only powerful by the things and deeds that you do, the cities you conquer, nothing else. Hearing another king is in town. What do you think Initially, just by hearing that, he would have thought, hmm, when he's coming after me. But then he says, oh. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. You see, Herod not only knew this in a physical sense, I don't think he was necessarily expecting you know, a baby to come and, and ransack him and take over his throne. But he also knew the political power. He knew that if the word got out that the Messiah was born, it didn't matter what the person itself would do. People would flock to that banner. He would lose power. He would lose authority. He would lose prestige. He would lose everything he had worked to gain. So they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent to them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come worship him. Now stop right there. And we know from the end of this section, verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And as we will talk about next week, we see what Herod was intending on doing. Herod was intent on trying to find out this king not to worship him, but to indeed worship himself. He wanted to get rid of this king. He wanted to cease and desist any power or any authority this new king may have before it even begins. And so he sent to find out where so that way he could act. It makes sense if your power structure is based on the world. It makes sense if power is only that which the more you worry about it, the more you work at it, the more you attain. It makes sense when your kingdom is only of this world. It makes a whole lot of sense. Herod was afraid to lose that which he held most important. He was afraid to lose that which he held most valuable. He was afraid to lose his way of life. He was afraid to lose his power. He was afraid to lose his authority. Although Herod probably knew the scriptures as well. 
So we have a moral expectation being subverted. We have a power expectation, which based on the context of Herod, makes perfect sense. And now, we have a messianic expectation. Con uh, continuing in verse 9, after they're given this task by Herod, after listening to the king, they went off on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I love that phrase. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The Magi, the kings, indeed. They were of the same culture that Joseph and Herod were. They were of the same, much the same upbringing, most likely. They knew the scriptures. The question that this angle on the text wants to ask is what makes them different? What makes them different? Consider that question for just a little bit as we turn back to the text. The interesting thing is, is that this prophecy, which when Herod uh, inquires, and they respond to him, and you, O Bethlehem, the land of Judah, by no means least among the rulers of Judah, from, from you shall come a ruler and will shepherd my people Israel. That verse, which is in verse chapter 2, verse 6, actually comes way back from the Old Testament in Numbers. I actually want to visit this for a minute. Certain verses will be on the screen. I do invite you to turn or mark Numbers 22 through 24. It's all three chapters from which this story comes from. The story is the story of Balaam and Balak, or as many of us may be more familiar with, Balaam and his donkey. The text reads, The Israelites traveled to the plains of Moab and camped along the Jordan across in the Jericho. Now Balak, son of Zippor, saw that all Israel had done to the Amorites. Moab was a foreign king. He was terrified because there were so many people. Indeed, Moab was filled with dread because of the Israelites. The Moabites said to the elders of Median, This horde is going to lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to summon Balaam, son of Beor, who was at Pethor, near the Euphrates River in his native land. And Balak said, A people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the land and have settled next to me. Now come and put a curse on these people, because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whoever you bless is blessed, and whoever you curse is cursed. What's the interesting thing about this is that not only the scripture, but the whole situation the Magi find themselves in reflects this very situation. What's going on? There is a foreign king who sees the people of God and he has an expectation of power. He sees them and he says, they are too powerful for me. I may lose my way of life. I may lose my authority. I may lose my people. I may lose everything. What can I do to get rid of these people? And the situation mirrors the birth of Christ. So the text goes on, and I don't have all the text up here because, as I said, it is most, uh, it is all chapters 22, 23, and 24. But I have a little bit uh, more. The elders of Moab and Midian came, taking with them the fee for divination. More to be said on that. I'm not going to touch that right now. <laughs> when they came to Balaam, they told him what Balak had said. Spend the night here, Balaam said to them, and I will report back to you the answer the Lord gives me. So the Moabite officials stayed with him. God 
came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? Balaam said, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. The people that has come out of Egypt covers the face of the land. Come and put a curse on them. Verse 12, God said to Balaam, Do not go with them. You must not put a curse on these people because they are blessed. The next morning, Balaam got up and said to Balak's officials, Go back to your own country, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the Moabite officials returned to Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. Now, if you're a king, you're not exactly used to people saying, No thanks. In the story, Balak convinces Balaam several times, tries to convince Balak several times, and each time Balaam says no. But, eventually, Balaam goes. 22, but the Lord's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way of his as his adversary. And from here is where we get the very famous story of Balaam and his donkey. 23, and the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. The donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. Balaam struck the donkey. <laughs> when the donkey saw, verse 27, the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. Anger's, Balaam's anger was kindled. He struck the donkey, and the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you've struck me these three times? And Balaam conversed with the donkey because that was normal. Balaam said very logically, you made a fool of me. And the donkey said, no, stop it. <laughs> Talk about expectations. <laughs> I think if a donkey talked to me, and, ah! Verse 31 of chapter 22, the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. He saw the angel, the Lord, and Balaam, basically long and short, does not curse Israel and follows God. The whole story here, the reason I went into this is because the whole story of Numbers 20, uh, 22, 23, 24 mirrors this situation very well. Very, very well. Balaam does not curse Israel, but instead pronounces four messages, some of which blesses Israel some of which curses the foreign lands. And in his fourth message, Balaam says this, The prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor, the prophecy of one whose eyes see clearly, is the prophecy of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate, and whose eyes are opened. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Which leads us right to the Magi seeing the star. And this time, unlike the other two characters in the story, they see the star, they remember the prophecy, and they look and expect the right thing. They expect and see the baby King Jesus. They go worship him offer him gifts, and they do not turn him over, as Balaam did, or rather did not, do not turn him over to the powers of the world. So, why did these three guys get it when Joseph and Herod didn't, is the question. 
What do you think the answer is? I'm not, not being rhetorical. What do you think the answer is? The conclusion that I came to is one that I've seen in my own life. The one that I see in many people's lives, not just in a biblical context or a theological context, but the very thing that I talked about at the very beginning of this sermon is that our expectations define for us more things than we want to admit. When it comes to Bible, when it comes to this story, when it comes to the lesson of this text, the lesson is that our expectations will often define how and where we see King Jesus or not. I've already said it a couple of times, but this is the point. Joseph missed it. Herod missed it. The Magi got it. The difference was who was really looking for the Christ. Who was expecting to see Jesus in these places as opposed to not. Now there are some intricacies to go into. This is the overarching principle. Our expectations will often define how and where we see King Jesus or not. Just sit with that for a moment. How has this been true in your own life? How has this been true in our church life? Elders, ministers, deacons, how has this been true in our ministries, ministry leaders? The unfortunate thing is that the last two words here are more true than we want to admit. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, what morals do we keep that maybe Jesus wouldn't? Now, I'm not saying that Jesus ever was immoral by any means. And I'm not just saying because we're immoral often, unfortunately, that it's all because of that. But what I mean here is that what morals do we make up in our own minds? What rules do we make up in our own heads or hearts or churches? What rules do we make up in our own society which prevents us from seeing people, the world, the same way Jesus did, and therefore seeing Jesus in those moments. If you recall, while Jesus was never immoral, he did technically, per the law of the day, break the law. He ate and worked on the Sabbath. He touched lepers. He touched women and people who had diseases and sicknesses, which the law forbade him to touch or even be close. He condoned a leper coming into the colony to seek him. He condoned a robber and condemned thief's faith on the cross next to him. The point that I want to make is that Jesus did not keep the societal morals, the cultural morals, and even people's personal morals from preventing him from spreading and being in the kingdom morals which he knew and lived out. What people don't we talk to or include or serve because that's just not what we do. What ministries don't we try or what ministries don't we fund because, well, I don't like that. What actions don't we take because of our fear of repercussion or judgment from those close to us or in our own church what quote-unquote morals get in the way of you seeing Jesus in this world? And likewise, what power do we keep that Jesus tells us to give up that we may see him and be like him? 
Are we so afraid of losing our way of life, our culture, our authority, that we will trust in the ways of the world to protect us when Scripture over and over and says that God himself will protect us? What kings do we put our trust in that is just afraid of God as anyone? Because they are a king according to the ways of the world and not the ways of Christ. What are we willing to do as a society to keep that power when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me? And that's how you gain power. What are we afraid to lose in our life? What are we afraid to lose in reputation? That Jesus says you're worshiping the wrong thing. The question then is what Messiah do we expect and therefore become followers? Therefore, followers we become. The thing is, it follows suit. If we are beholden to the quote-unquote morals of our society and of ourselves that we make up, we become followers of Jesus who exemplify those morals and we make our own gospel instead of following the gospel of Christ. If we become followers in the powers and principalities of the world and governments and become so enraptured with that we will find Jesus in the ways necessary to keep those ways of life, which is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, but, one of my favorite phrases in Scripture is the simple phrase, but God. Every time you see a but God, I invite you, if you do this sort of thing, I invite you to underline it because it means that God's about to do something or reveal something that changes everything he's talked about. But God makes it possible that if we follow and seek and truly strive and truly, truly become the Messiah of the Bible, we will find Jesus in so many places. We will find Jesus in the woman at the corner. We will find Jesus in the midst of pain and strife of our brothers and sisters. We will find Jesus in the midst of excitement and joy. We will find Jesus in all we will find Jesus in the right places, in the right ways that Jesus says is the right way to spread the kingdom and the right way to follow me. And I'm not just talking about obeying the rules or morals. I'm talking about living as Christ. I'm talking about taking up our cross and as Paul says, making it Real, not just a word or not just a uh, sometimes, but making it to where Christ lives in me so that when I see an opportunity to be as Christ did, I don't care about the morals of the world. I don't care about the power of the world. I care about if this is what Jesus, if Jesus were here, this is what he would do and be and act like. In essence, we take the gospel of the baby king seriously. 
and become newborns ourselves, as it were, new creation upon baptism and faith, it not guarantee that we will grow into the Christ of the Bible. We will grow into the Christ that we expect. The question from this text this morning is what are your expectations of where Christ is, who God is, who you ought to become? Because Scripture guarantees if you expect and look for Christ in the wrong places, you'll find something there. Except it won't be the gospel of Christ. The promise of Scripture also is And if you humble yourself, take up your cross, and follow the true Messiah, the kingdom will be spread, eternal life will be blessed, and the gospel of truly Jesus Christ the Messiah will be seen. God has given us what we need in this book, in this world, and in his church. I challenge you this week to look for and expect Christ in the places to where maybe he's always been that you haven't let him be before. And to maybe dismantle the expectations placed in the wrong things so that Christ can be laid as a foundation to build up his church and his kingdom as he says, according to his expectation that was put in place long before the foundations of the world for the redemption of all man. Heavenly Father, at the risk of being blunt, oftentimes it hasn't been your enemies or your detractors or your non-believers who have caused harm to the gospel, oftentimes it has been your children who has taken your gospel and has made it into our own image. We repent and apologize for this, God. And we pray that you can knock down the structures of the world that have been wrought and built within our hearts and minds so that the true foundation of Christ Jesus, the true Messiah King, can be built from this day forward in our hearts, in our families, in our churches, and, Lord, you willing, in our society, in our country. May your true gospel, not one that we, that we deflect and divert from and roundaboutly talk about, may your true gospel of you on earth be known in our lives and in our church and may your kingdom be spread because of it. I pray God that while this is direct that we are encouraged the fact that our own efforts and hopes are not all there is but yet even in the midst of seeing sometimes our own expectations played out too well you are still there, and there is hope eternal in your true kingdom, if only we return and walk in it. Be with us this day as we commit to step in your steps, to live as you lived, to die as you died. 
and to be the reflection of the true King Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.